Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast. Today's episode is going to be very touching and near and dear to my heart, and hopefully it is near and dear to your heart. Uh, before we get into that, please remember to hit the subscribe button no matter what platform you're listening to this podcast on, whether it's my own personal website, hunterpolicetraining.com slash podcast, if you're listening to it there, if you're listening to it on iHeart, Radio, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Breaker, TuneIn, Google Play Music. No matter what you're listening to this on, make sure you download it, hit that subscribe button, give it a good rating, and make sure that you share it on your Facebook page, share it through email, send it to a friend, send it to an enemy, and make sure that you are just getting this information out there. Today's episode is about the Michael Bell story. Now, Michael Bell Sr. has taken up a crusade for justice for his son who was murdered by the Kenosha Police Department uh, back in 2004. The reason I wanted to have this as an episode is because I want to, number one, bring illumination to this story, show how this type of malfeasance, when it does go on in the police culture, culture of corruption goes on, that it destroys not only the black community, but it also destroys any member, anyone that it touches. There's a saying that I've been saying, you might have heard me say it before, is that if they come from me in the morning, they will come from you in the evening. This sort of police corruption that black people, in particular, communities of color and poor communities have been complaining about finally hit home to a high-ranking major in the united states air force to a middle-class family and this man decided not to take it laying down and decided to do something about it he then sat on the 21st century police task force on the obama administration he's spoken with the naacp he has spoken with major news outlets he's taken up billboards and signs to get this information out there he's hired private investigators in fact this is part one of a two-part episode that i'm going to do next week's episode is also going to feature one of the police detectives from the kenosha police department who saw what was going on saw the cover-up for what it was decided he couldn't take it anymore and this was just a straw that brought the camels back in his almost in his own words and you will hear him next week next episode and we're going to interview him and his role in helping to bring truth and shed light on this whole internal investigation. So I would encourage all who are listening to go to Plea for Change, Facebook page, Plea for Change, the Michael Bell shooting. Go to that page. Make sure you like it. Read over the information. Go to michaelbell.info, michaelbell.info. It has numerous videos. They did a number of different documentaries. All the information is there. Please read that over and familiarize yourself with this story. Once again, if they did it to other people, it can happen to you. And what we're looking for is to change the corrupt culture in any corrupt police department. That's what we're looking for. We're not looking to take down any police officers in particular, but we are looking to change the culture. There was a culture of cover-up, as will be revealed when you watch these videos, when you hear this interview with Michael Bell Sr., and when you hear the next week's episode with Russell Beckman. That's going to be next week's episode. Russell Beckman, he was a former detective from the Kenosha Police Department. So without further delay, everyone, here's the episode. Please enjoy the interview. Thank you so much, Michael Bell Sr. So just to give a brief synopsis of your story, on November 9, 2004, your son, Michael Jr., was stopped by the Kenosha Police Department for a suspicion of drunk driving. To make a long story short, a fight ensues. It leads to your backyard at this time for some ridiculous reason, the police shoot and kill Michael. Three days later, if my understanding is correct, three days later, without having done a full investigation, without having interviewed everyone, the district attorney declares that the shooting is justified and the case is closed. You, Michael Bell Sr., are completely dissatisfied with the outcome. You don't understand how they could have rushed to judgment and you wanted a full, much fuller, much more comprehensive investigation completed. 
it never was. And so your story is, is essentially that. And now you have gone on a campaign and a crusade to make sure that there is transparency within police department investigations, particularly when they are people are shot by the police, put up a number of billboards and signs. And as a result of your hard work and investigation, there was a law change in Wisconsin and similar laws passed uh, in different states, which caused police departments to to not be the arbiter of their own investigations. Do I have your story essentially correct? Uh, just a couple of tweaking things for you. First off is the suspicion of drunk driving. We we don't know if that's the case or not. We, there's no indication on why um, my son was pulled over. He was actually parked in front of his own home, and he had turned off the engine of his car and was exiting the car when an officer came up. Two days later, actually it was, it was two calendar days later, the chief of police had a review board, and they ruled the shooting as justified, and it was the coworkers of the officer involved. And about two weeks later, the DA came down and said that he accepted the police chief's findings uh, of this two-day investigation, and, and he wasn't going to press charges either. So those are just minor corrections, and I, I'm sure your audience would probably want to know that. So. No, I certainly thank you for the corrections. This has been tragic more than 15 years now. How are you coping? How is the family coping? How is everyone getting along? Your listeners probably want to know that um, Michael was killed in front of his mother and sister. Uh, the commotion happened in his backyard, and there were some neighbors, and everybody came out immediately to hear what was happening. And, and the officer just didn't shoot my son. The officer took a gun, placed it directly to his temple, pulled the trigger. The trigger wouldn't release because the slide was disengaged because there was so much tension. Then the officer put it back again and then uh, fired that deadly shot. And so um, there was a tremendous amount of trauma for the women that had witnessed their their loved one being. And, and it, it, like I said, it's not a shooting. It was an execution when you put a gun to somebody's temple and, and fire that way. And so uh, I, as a retired military officer, and I wasn't a military, I, I wasn't retired at the time. I was a major. I'm a pilot, and I fl was flying for the United States Air Force. And uh, I had questioned some of these things because I, in my mind, had thought, there's going to be a transparent review of what occurred, and we're going to find out really uh, what the findings are and what the true causes were. Because up until that point, everything that I've ever done was based on what the National Transportation Safety Board or the Inspector General for the United States Air Force does anytime that there's a crash. They look at all the causes, and then they try to figure out what went wrong, and they initiate changes so that it doesn't happen again. So here I am. I'm kind of a naive person in the community thinking it's going to go that way, and that didn't happen. And so we had to process the, the trauma of losing my son, and then I had to process the trauma of, of asking for assistance, knowing that these things were wrong, and, and nobody was bothering to, to really help us out. And so... We processed the trauma, and then afterwards, I went on a campaign to go ahead and, and make sure that uh, law enforcement doesn't investigate themselves, because in our research, I had found out in 100 years, since 1895, when police and fire commissions were founded in the state of Wisconsin, that never in that 100 years had a police department, a police and fire commission, or a coroner's inquest ever found an officer shooting unjustified. Wow. And that bothered me because in a hundred years, I mean, that is almost an impossible record of perfection. Right. And during that period of time, we were able to find 
only three rulings uh, where a DA came back and said the police shootings weren't justified, and two of those were brought upon by citizen action. And so the track record showed that there was a problem within the system. And and if you question it, uh, people said, "Well, you're you're against the police." And no, I'm, I'm I'm a military officer. I love my country. I have law enforcement under com- my command. My best friend right now is a, a law enforcement officer, retired law enforcement officer. And so, with all that said and done, I went out and I started raising some heat. And I did that through billboard advertising and full-page advertising and ads and so forth. And I essentially came up with a billboard campaign that said, when police kill, should they judge themselves? And uh, at one point, I raised that question on 43 billboards along the interstates in Milwaukee, and about 12 million people a week were seeing it. And then uh, a boy was killed a little while later after my son was killed. He was killed on the same day at the same time, just six years later, in our capital city of Wisconsin-Madison. I ended up, the family reached out to me and said, would you assist? And I raised that same question up there. But it was in, in the backyard of the police union. The Wisconsin Professional Police Association was involved. I don't know if any of your followers are, are, are fans of General George Patton, but George Patton would always say, audacity, audacity, always audacity. And I remember driving past the police union headquarters, and I thought, well, I am going to go in and introduce myself to the director of that that police union. And I, I did so, and uh, to my surprise, I found a very cordial, very acceptable response from the director. His name was Jim Palmer. And eventually, uh, we we had some back and forth tension, but he essentially said, you know, if you take down those billboards, I will help you craft the legislation you seek. Wow. And I didn't know, yeah, I didn't know that they had done some polling uh, throughout. They had gone to St. Norbert's University in Wisconsin, and they had polled the general public about this issue. And 80% of the public believe that the police should not have investigated themselves after a police-involved fatality. And so he went back to his board, and uh, this is my interpretation of what occurred, but he went back to his board, and uh, they were like, why aren't you fighting against this Michael Bell guy and everything? And he brings this down and goes, the public believes the message that he's calling for is correct. And so um, I will tell you that the politicians were scared to death about this thing. They thought they were going to assist Michael Bell and then be labeled as anti-law enforcement. And Jim Palmer pretty much had to go into every single legislator's office at our Capitol and tell them that if you vote for this measure, it's okay because we believe in this. With a lot of hard work and continuing pressure, I took out a full-page ad in USA Today calling uh, attention to the situation in, in, in Kenosha with what happened to my son. We were able to have a unanimous vote in the Senate, a unanimous vote in the House, and Governor Scott Walker uh, signed the first law of its nation in its type that any law enforcement-involved fatality cannot investigate themselves in the state of Wisconsin. And that only dealt with uh, law enforcement itself. It didn't go into the into the jail system, a prison guard or something like that, and you were involved with fatality. That has not that has not come up, but any police-involved fatality. So that's pretty much my backstory for your listeners, and fire away questions with me. No, no, listen, that that was a great backstory, and thank you very much. I'd like to know more about any type of negative pushback. Unfortunately, law enforcement can be notorious for extrajudicial, I don't even know how to say wow. it, you know, just, the, but what thank kind you. of negative pushbacks did you get? 
I actually have a very interesting file about the negative pushback that I received. Law enforcement officers were like, the kid got what he deserved. He was nothing more than human feces. Wow. And, you know, yeah, that type of thing. And then there was some intimidation factors trying to go on. Um, They would take a, a squad car and park it out in front of Michael's mother's house. She would like, here, you know, they they killed my child in front of me, and now they're sitting out in front of my squad, in front of my house in a squad car for an hour or two hours. The officers that actually were involved had called her and told told her about that. In addition to that, wasn't that much longer, I had gone and spoke in front of the Police and Fire Commission here in Kenosha, and the officer that actually shot Michael confronted me in a parking lot afterwards. And it just so happens that every time I made a public talk, I would always take a microphone so that way I wouldn't be misquoted. And I stuck a microphone in my pocket and it was it was live. And the officer confronted me about killing Michael. And uh, I had a, I had an investigator, another former police officer working for me at the time. And he saw me speaking with this officer and he took out his video camera. So he was able to get 45 seconds of video, but I got eight and a half minutes of, of recording. And if any of your viewers are interested, if they go to michaelbell.info, that conversation has been made into about an 18-minute documentary to show uh, how things occurred. And I know of no other place in the nation where an officer confronted the father of a man that he killed, and that conversation was tape recorded and made into a video. So I I think you'll find it very compelling. I did go to (laughs) michaelbell.info. Uh, I did watch the Forensically Impossible feature there, so I would definitely go back and check out that particular video. Were any charges pressed against uh, any officer for threatening or anything like that? No, nothing. None of the repercussions. Your listeners need to know that in 2010, after this settlement, I refused to accept the non-disclosure of confidentiality. And I told them, I said, if you want to settle, fine, but I'm not accepting a confidentiality agreement or non-disclosure. And they they settled. And I think that should be a good indication of how bad they wanted this to go away. Yes. And so I then took the data that we had. And the deposition of the officers were this. And this is going to be very important for your, your listeners who are officers or potential officers, is that the four officers involved in Michael's death all gave the same, almost identical testimony on their deposition. And after they were done, uh, my attorney hands them a copy of the medical examiner's report. And all four officers said that my son was shot on the left side of the temple and that the officer was on the front of the car. And my attorney, and this is all videotaped and you can see it in Forensically Impossible, gives them a copy of the medical examiner's report and has them read a paragraph. And the paragraph essentially says the bullet enters right to left, front to back, slightly downward. And you can actually see the officer. He knew he was busted because nobody even bothered in that two-day investigation where they cleared themselves of all wrongdoing to even look at the medical examiner's report. And what's incredible is is that, if I remember correctly, the deposition wasn't until about three years later. That's uh, correct. Okay, so two days later, they didn't look at it. But even three years later, they didn't really do, do any type didn't of... Didn't even bother to look at it. <laughs> That's just... And, and, and to make it matters even more interesting is we're not done. <laughs> okay. We're not we're not done and, and and probably in about two weeks or so I'm gonna be releasing the additional findings 
In Wisconsin, it's up to citizens to conduct uh, an investigation on the law enforcement homicides. But I'm going to be releasing in about two weeks the nuts and bolts of what really happened, and we're going to show where the cover-up occurred, oh, wow. and they're going to have to answer to it. And I am spinning up additional advertising as we speak. In fact, I'm leaving here in about an hour after our conversation to go ahead and make all the public aware of really what went on here, who was involved, and how high up the cover-up went. Wow. Wow. I got to say you have a pair on you. I mean, <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> you, that's, that's really impressive. And thank you, number one. I got to say thank you as a member of law enforcement for helping to bring these things to light. Now, people will ask me, why am I doing this? Am I against law enforcement? I had, I had a 24-year career. I retired at the rank of captain, and I had a good career. I, I was in a good department in Waterbury, Connecticut. I'm not anti-law enforcement. They didn't do me wrong. They didn't screw me over or anything like that. But I'm doing this because I think that it needs to be done. And I think that you have a good story to tell in helping people to, to shed light on what can go on in, in certain departments. Now, this Kenosha Police Department had a number of other scandals following this case, right? A cup, uh, planting yeah, of evidence. Yeah, yeah. There, yeah, there was planting. Your listeners need to know that I am not anti-law enforcement, but I am pro-truth. Right. And I'm a military officer. And I can tell you story after story after story of good law enforcement officers who have saved lives and have done the right thing. Just right up the road from us, there was a, a, a shooting at a Sikh temple, and a lieutenant came in and took 14 rounds trying to save lives. So I am not anti-law enforcement in any way, but I am pro-truth. And if you and I do know that being a military officer, there were there were certain flying squadrons that had a reputation of having a bad culture. And I assure you that the culture that happens here in Kenosha is a bad culture because it wasn't much longer that a number of other issues occurred. There was an officer that had questionable, his disposition was questionable, and he shot a kid uh, holding an empty bucket uh, six times in the chest. Wow. And that was his second shooting in 10 days. And it was his first day of coming back off the first shooting that he ended up shooting this other fella. And this officer, I raised the, I raised the flag on him years before because... He had tased one of my employees who was at home holding his one-year-old child when he tased him. Wow. And I like, and so I raised that question. Then we had uh, another one and recently where there was a police officer that had taken a driver's license and a bullet. He had taken it to, the homo to a homicide scene and placed it in a backpack of one of the people that were suspect. And then he had told his commanding officers later on that he had done that. And, and our department allowed him to continue to, to process evidence after he even admitted it to him that he had, a, had an issue where he was planting that type of thing. So you can see that the Kenosha Police Department has a history of it, and I'm sure that what I'm bringing forward is going to change things dramatically very soon. I certainly hope so, and thank you for all your efforts. <clears throat> you gave an interview for fatherly.com. And I just want to quote to you a little bit from this. After having my son killed by a police officer, while his mother and sisters stood 10 feet away, I recognized there were problems with the investigation into the shooting. I made complaints to the people that I expected to be able to handle those complaints. The U.S. attorney, the governor, the attorney general. No one responded. If it happened to me as a military officer who served in Afghanistan, Bosnia, Kosovo, and Desert Storm, then I knew that there was a problem for other people as well. If they didn't have the resources or were Asian or Hispanic or African-American, then I knew that they were being blocked. 
I would say that the average public person out there is the ignorant white professional. If it doesn't happen to, to them, they don't think it's a problem. Can you just talk a little bit about that? And I'll tell you this, that I was an ignorant white professional myself, that when I would see these types of reports on TV and I saw that it might be a minority or somebody of a different uh, social economic class, I would suspect that the officers were probably correct. But I didn't know. I tell people a story about there was a guy named Larry Nasser who was a doctor who was um, working with the gymnasts in our country. Yes, and yes, yes. He yes. was molesting a number of gymnasts, and the daughter of one of these, a gymnast, went to her father and said, Dad, he is doing this to me. And the father re refused to believe it. And eventually, when he did accept the truth, he, only, he took his own life. I assure you that when my daughter told me what happened the morning afterward, I refused to believe my own child and what happened in my son's case because I just didn't think that it could occur. But I do know that there are departments out there that will do anything it can to reduce its exposure, to reduce its liability, to reduce any type of public relations that are going to harm it. And that is actually hurting law enforcement because now that they're caught, it's really going to hurt them. I don't know if any of your listeners know this or not, but I am pushing for a National Transportation Safety Board type investigation into law enforcement, police-involved deaths. And we're very close. We had a summit here in the state of Wisconsin about two years ago, and I, I brought in NASA, I brought in Harvard Medical School, I brought in the national, I brought in the managing director of the National Transportation Safety Board. And then we brought in national and local law enforcement experts because I wanted the NTSB, I wanted Harvard, and I wanted, I wanted NASA to share with them their learning models. And the reason I, the reason I did this is I, through my research, have been informed, and I truly believe that about 25% of officer-involved fatalities are use-of-force errors. In my son's case, it was a use of force error. If you go to the, the, the documentary, Forensically Impossible, you will see that an officer, we believe strongly, and all the evidence indicates that, hooked his gun on a car mirror. Uh, there was a jacket gap between the belt and, and the gun holster, and this mirror, which was very thin, slid in between there. Well... This officer misinterpreted that as a as my son grabbing a weapon and screaming, he's got my gun, shoot, shoot, and and that wasn't the case. So it was a use of force error. You take a look at Douglas Zerby. Um, you take a look at um, the Lopez shooting. You take a look uh, in San Francisco where it was a kid with a toy gun. You, you take a look at the John Crawford shooting in, in Beaverton, Ohio. A young kid goes into a Walmart. Uh, he's talking to his mom on a cell phone. He picks up a toy gun. He's upset about something with his mom, but he's got a toy gun sitting on his shoulder. An officer runs in, gives him a command, drop your weapon, drop your weapon, and then just fires almost immediately, not even giving a kid to uh, interpret what's going on. Well, those are use of force errors. Right. And they're hurting law enforcement. Right. And the NTSB said, well, this is how we've stopped aviation mishaps and aviation errors, right. and you should do that. And so we are, we are in a process right now in the state of Wisconsin of creating a law enforcement and community safety board. We're calling it the, the Police and Community Safety Board. 
And what they will do is they'll take a look at root cause and see what, what happened. Because there's typically a chain of, of events that leads up to a police-involved death. And it will review it for the citizen, but it will also review it for the officer. Like, we lost an officer's life because of this. What can we have done to prevent it? And so right now, I know we're in a third draft of our legislation, and we're going to be circulating it very soon, but that's a very important step. Are there any co-sponsors? I know before you talk to the NAACP, are there any co-sponsors along with this, what you're trying to do as far as this national? I mean, besides the Harvard, besides any civic organizations is what I'm asking. My strong belief, it, it will never happen on a national level. It has to happen on the state level. Mm-hmm. And then and then once it happens on the state level, just like our first bill, where we had several, uh, had, I think we have seven states now that just followed suit with, that we shouldn't investigate ourselves. It will happen. And once we have our own learning, and, and I'm basing this off a model. In uh, Massachusetts, Boston, Massachusetts, there was, a, there was a woman. Her name was Betsy Lehman. She was the health writer for Boston, the Boston Globe. And she ended up being diagnosed with a very low version of breast cancer. And she went into, she picked, she hand, because she was the health writer, she hand selected all her evidence and she was going to report on this as she's going through this process. And she goes for a chemo treatment. And I believe it was at Harvard Medical School. And she ends up having a heart attack and dying. And about three weeks later, they recognized they had given her four times the normal dose of her chemo treatment. And that's why she had passed away. So this played across the front page of the Boston Globe for a number of years, and Massachusetts created their first patient safety center. And then Pennsylvania followed and Oregon followed. Well, I believe that that's what will happen here in the state of Wisconsin, that we will, we will pass a police and community safety board, and we will create a police and community safety center, and its sole purpose will be to look at police-involved deaths and both caused by police and police dying, and we'll look at the causes of what happened and say, what can we do to bring those numbers down? Hopefully, we'll record the data so we can look and say, hey, 10 years ago, we had 30 police-involved deaths in the state of Wisconsin, and now we're down to eight or something like that. Our reforms are working. Up until this moment, there was no recording of that data. There was no dissemination of the learning models, none of that. And so that's why this is so important. You mentioned, well, I mentioned before, and I believe you talked to the NAACP. Now, that was concerning specifically the Philando Castillo shooting. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Now, oh, how- yeah, yeah, yes, I did. Um, I remember um, it, was, it happened just right after the Philando Castillo shooting. Chris Cuomo had me on CNN National, and the director of the NAACP out of Minneapolis was on there also. Hmm. And, and And I knew I hit the sweet spot of my message when... I am on a national show, and she's upset about the Philando Castile shooting. But my message, when I was talking to her about these reforms, she said that she would accept that. And so, yes, I, I did work with a little bit with the NAACP. She said that she, who was the she? She was the director of the NAACP up in Minneapolis. Okay. And when I talked to her about the reforms that we were seeking, uh, Chris Cuomo looked at her directly, and I would you, and he said, "Would you accept the reforms that Michael Bell is calling for?" And she she did agree on that, and and that is this National Transportation Safety Board style model of uh, going into all the root causes of what caused the death, and then correcting it. Just a, a little background, like my son's death, a piece of equipment that was shaped a certain way for one reason caused my son's death, and so do we go back and we re-engineer that that you know that this jacket gap in this holster 
which is allowed to have the gun on the outside during cold winter months and allow the jacket to fit in between the holster and this gun to keep the officer warm, has this been snagged on other things? Has it been caught on a seatbelt or whatever? And, and does it, and, and should we re-engineer it? And that is the, what I'm looking for here. I think that that's commendable, but let me just give you just a little bit of pushback on that. Is it partly the training? I mean, first of all, Yes, okay, there was a snag. Yeah. There probably was a snag. And I, being in Connecticut, I am very familiar with that type of uh, jacket that is worn, the type of holster that the officers wear. So I certainly under, understand that. However, did the officers overreact? I know neither one of us want to be anti-police, but I think we have to be follow the investigation and get to the truth. Did the officers overreact? We know that they definitely overreacted as far as the cover-up. I mean, that's just egregious. But at the time of the incident, is there any blame on the officers for overreacting, for, for rushing to judgment? Well, and, and, and I go back, the NTSB-style model will, will show deficiencies in training and make, one of, make it one of their safety recommendations once their report is complete. If, if for some reason I was, I use an example, I wrote an article called The Insanity of Finding Fault Versus Fixing Cause. And I took a law enforcement-type shooting and then I took an aviation-type death, and I said, look at the difference in the outcomes of these. There was a guy named Peterson, and he was leaving an airport down in St. Louis, and he taxied across the wrong runway as a jetliner was taking off, and the wing of his jet, the jetliner cut through his cockpit and killed him and his passenger. Well, the NTSB will look back and say, how did this guy end up on the wrong runway? Was there radio communications? Was there inappropriate markings on the runway itself or in the taxiways? Was there a bad map that led him to believe that? And he looked at all that and said, you know, he could have misinterpreted here, and he misinterpreted there, and this is how we, we fix that. That would happen in law enforcement. This police and community safety board would look back and say, this happened here, but it's a training deficiency. And we need to send a memo out to all our departments and say, there's a training deficiency that happened in this person's death. And if you implement this safety recommendation, we can reduce the reoccurrence of it happening again. That's where I go, I go back and say training could be an issue. Very good. Thank you. I was reading up in fatherly.com where the, the article is, the 24 billboards outside Kenosha, Wisconsin, tell a father's real story. Is it true that your story inspired the movie about the 23 billboards in Missouri or whatever that movie was? You know, there's a lot of similar coincidences. I contacted the producer on that and I asked them because in there they used three billboards and I had 24. Okay. In there, an officer involved commits suicide. In there, and same, same with our story, I asked it with a question. One of the things I had to worry about was I could have been civilly liable if I discredited somebody. How do you approach that without saying, you know, these police officers lied or there was a cover-up or whatever? But by asking a question to the public, which I'm entitled to ask, is, was there a cover-up? And that, and so um, they, in, in the three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri, they asked their questions on their billboards, which was very similar. So I don't think it was the basis. There's a strong probability that it might have been, and they just don't want to admit it. I haven't been given any indications that it was. Okay. So I would encourage all listeners to go to michaelbell.info, read up on everything. Got a number of videos on here. Forensically Impossible, I think, is definitely worth watching. It is really very eye-opening. I hope that the Kenosha, and I say this with all due respect, I hope that the Kenosha Police Department has 
fixed its problems, including their district attorney. Certainly, I want to give you the last word. Thank you so much for what you have done and what you're continuing to do. Just tell us where you're going forward with this. And you said in two weeks, you're releasing another report and you have a number of articles. Where can we read these articles at? Can you just wrap up with that? I have a Facebook page called Plea for a Change, the Michael Bell Shooting. I try to keep people aware nationally of what's really going on in other communities with the law enforcement hiring issues, uh, with the mental health issues relating to law enforcement now and the way they're treated by community, uh, how we can improve things. I also report on where the heroic deeds are officers. I report on there and show them uh, people how important officers are to our community. That will be ground zero for everything that's occurring in the very near future. Uh, we have other sites, but that will be ground zero as we release documents. In fact, I just did an interview with the Libertarian Institute, and it's a 38-minute interview, and I've alluded to some of these findings that we're going to be releasing very soon. And so your listeners can, can find out more from that Facebook page. Very good. Thank you very much, Michael Bell. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I live in Connecticut, but I'm currently in Tacoma, Washington. My son is also in the Air Force. I'm out here visiting him. So I thank you for your service in the military. I thank you for your service and what you have done concerning law enforcement and keep up the good work. Lawrence Hunter, thank you very much for having me on the show. Take care. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much to Michael Bell Sr. for being on the podcast. I give this man a lot of credit because he continues to relive this. This incident happened in 2004, and ever since then, his crusade has caused him to give numerous article interviews. He's been interviewed a number of times. He's been on this podcast since 2004. For the last 15 years, he has been reliving this. His family has been reliving this. I give him a lot of credit, but his his patience, his perseverance, his crusade for justice is well worth the fight in order to bring about the changes that he wants. That NTSB style investigation type system that he's looking for is something that's definitely and desperately needed in law enforcement. I hope that it does pass in Wisconsin. I hope that other states similarly follow along. I do know that in the state of Connecticut, where if one town does have a police-involved shooting, that the state police will have to come and do the investigation. And usually it's the state police, you know, the state of Connecticut, I'm assuming all the other states are broken down into some type of jurisdictional type of province. So if there's a shooting, let's just say in Hartford, Connecticut, the Troop H there and the district attorney over that particular district will not be the ones who are doing the investigation. It will be someone from a completely separate district and completely different troop that will have to do the investigation. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking for transparency. We're looking for full and thorough investigations into the truth of what happens. Um, and that's what we're looking for. And another point that I really want you all to hear is for those of you who are community activists, get in touch with Michael Bell. See about how you can do similar type of organizing. Understand that we need to learn from those effective methods that are employed in getting work done and getting things accomplished. He put up billboards. He continued to push and push and push. He had the financial resources and the will to do what he wanted to do. And there's so many community activists. Now, this is what we need to do instead of always rioting in the streets, instead of protesting in the streets with plaques and, and signs. That That isn't getting anything done. But what is being done, what he was able to do efficiently and effectively was get some laws changed. And so the Wisconsin became the first state in the union, which mandated that at any time there's a police involved shooting and or killing that the police department could not 
investigate themselves. So learn from this. Any community activists out there who are listening to this, learn from this, communicate with him and other people who are actually getting things accomplished. Riding in the streets, breaking up businesses, burning down businesses, and riding in the streets and getting a confrontation with the police is not going to accomplish anything. But what he did was he went about this the right way. And I really want people to learn from that. So that's it, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, tune in next week. We're going to have the second part of this where we're going to interview Russell Beckman, the former detective who became uh, Mr. Bell's private investigator. He's going to talk about his role and everything that he saw with the, which was going on in Kenosha Police Department and how he retired from the police department and then became a crusader and warrior for justice himself. So tune in next week for that. Make sure that you hit me up on CPTL Hunter. That's Captain L Hunter on Twitter, CPTL Hunter on Instagram, Captain L Hunter on YouTube. Please make sure that you subscribe, share, and like. Also remember, you can help to support the podcast with CPTL Hunter. That's Venmo's CPT. That's Lawrence Hunter, CPTL Hunter for PayPal, CPTL Hunter for Cash App. And once again, I'm only, I'm not asking for much. You can do whatever you can do. You get these show notes and also you help me to upgrade equipment so we can have more than one guest on at a time. And there's a lot of other things I'm looking forward to doing, but I can only do it with your support. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Until next week, make sure you tune in. That's it. Take care. Much love and peace. Oh,